scripture reading will be found in, actually it's in two different places in the Gospels. The first one will be found in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 57 down through 68. If you want to follow along with the Bibles that are there in front of you in the pew, you can find that on page 1040. And so Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57, and then we're going to turn over and read John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. And that's found on page 1129. So 1040 is the first passage in Matthew. And then 1129 is the second passage in John chapter 18. As you're finding your way there, we try to say this each and every week. Those Bibles are in the pews. They're there for you to use as we worship. But they're also there for you to take with you. If you need a Bible or you know someone that needs a Bible, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. And so please do so if that pertains to you today. So Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance and as as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. They spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And then John chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 28. So John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to them, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth listens to my voice. 
Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he said this, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover and it was the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king, but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me and then we're going to look at that together. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you as we read these words this morning and we hear uh, as Jesus chose on our behalf to come and lay down his life. And we see these things. We pray that we would see exactly who he is. And what he's done for us and what it means for us in our world today. Uh, we pray that you would reveal to us in the areas where we're missing the fullness of who Jesus is and what he's called us to. We pray that we would see it afresh today and we'd see the glory of what you've done to it, done for us on our behalf. We pray that we would uh, leave here having been changed as we spend time in your word. We ask that you'd be the one that leads and guides and teaches us as we confess we cannot do any of this without you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Uh, there's a lot uh, going on in the world, uh, a lot of horrible, sad, difficult things. Uh, you think about just the last couple of weeks, we've had war break out in the Middle East uh, in kind of staggering ways when you see what's happening there and uh, just awfulness that you see. Uh, I'm sure most of you have, have heard a couple of weeks ago in Maine, there was another mass shooting. A guy went in and just decided to shoot a whole bunch of people for no apparent reason. Uh, you see those things and it's easy when you see those headlines and you see what's happening uh, to mourn the loss, uh, 
to be overwhelmed and frustrated by the evil in the world. Uh, maybe even when you see those things, uh, you start to grow angry. Uh, and, and maybe that's okay. You know, the Bible talks about the idea of a righteous anger, being angry at the things that God hates. And so when we see senseless loss of life and violence in those ways and some of those things, sometimes uh, we should be angry. There should be a righteous and holy anger, anger over the things that God hates. But then sometimes when we see those things, that anger can quickly turn into frustration or hopelessness. Or that anger can go from being a holy, righteous anger to more of an anger of vengeance. We can start to take it to a place that's not good. And suddenly when we dwell there, then it can lead us to sin if we're not careful. Uh, I remember hearing a phrase years ago that there's always this uh, temptation whenever evil happens in the world. And we see those things, the temptation to become a monster in order to defeat a monster. And how that's ever present in our lives and in the world we live in, in a sinful, broken world. How quickly we can start to cross over uh, and begin to think that, well, violence begets violence, but we can end that violence with more violence and it just comes into the circle. And we see these things kind of growing and how hard that is. And so I want us just to think about when we look at the world and we look at the things that are happening, how do we continue to be faithful to Jesus in the face of all these kinds of things? And it's easy, you can say, well, we, we trust God and we trust his word and we obey him and what he says, and that's true, and we should, and we are called, we say that all the time, we want to grow as disciples of Jesus, so that's growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life, and we want to do that, we want to continue to do that. But sometimes it's really hard, it's really hard when we see evil in the world. It's really hard when we see evil in the world, but then we're bombarded with messages that say, and this is the way you fix it. Because a lot of the times, the messages that we're bombarded with in our world are actually enticing lies that appeal to our flesh and not to the spirit in which we're called to walk in. And it's so easy for us to slip into that, for all of us, at different times. And I was thinking about that, of of when we do as the church, and I say the church, not just our church locally, but the church in the world, the church universal that is seeking to follow Jesus When we embrace those lies and we start to slide into that, we greatly damage the witness of the church. We're called to be a light that's set on the hill. We're called to show what God is like. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of the darkness. And we're supposed to be showing what God is like. But what often happens is we engage with the way the world says that it works instead of how Jesus says that it works. And suddenly we look just like the world. And so how do we do that? And so I want us to think about this passage, the two passages I just read to you this morning. Jesus has just been arrested. We're now in the very final hours. He's been arrested and then he's been taken to this kind of sham of a trial before the religious leaders of the day and then before Pontius Pilate, who is the governor over Judea. That's the Roman governor over this area. And he stands before him. And as you just heard, as I read it to you, we get to the halfway through chapter uh, 16, uh, or I'm sorry, of uh, 18 of John, or 19 of John, we read 18 and 19, we get halfway through chapter 19, and we get to verse 16, and they say that Jesus has now been delivered over to be crucified. And so he's been sentenced to death by the Roman authorities, and you look at all of this stuff and all that's going on, and I want us to consider this morning the lies that they were believing that led them to this place to seek to put Jesus to death. The only sinless person that ever lived is sentenced to death. 
How in the world could that happen? What are the lies that are there that they're believing that lead us to this? But then I also want us to turn and look at Jesus and what he shows us of how we counteract those lies that are so prevalent in the world. And so I want us to think about this together. Let me just give you lay of the land real quick as we as we move into these passages. As we read through this, we've been doing this throughout the year. Uh, we've been looking chronologically through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books that are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that tell us what he did and where he went and what he said and all that goes with it. And we've been looking at different passages. You notice today we put two together, one from Matthew and then one from John. I'd encourage you, if you go read all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give you four different perspectives of this same scenario of what's happening. And we get kind of a picture of exactly how it laid out. I'm going to leave some of that out just for sake of time today, but just so you're aware what happens when they arrest Jesus, they take him off first to see Annas, who is Caiaphas's uh, father-in-law, right? And so he's, he's one of the religious leaders. He's got some ends. They take him first there. He says, take him to Caiaphas. They then take Jesus over to Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin, which we just read about in Matthew's gospel. And then from there, they deliver him over to Pontius Pilate, who is the, the governor of the area in Rome. There's one small uh, snapshot that we've left out in that. When he comes before Pilate, Pilate talks to him, questions Jesus, but then he sends him over to Herod. Herod was one of the other governors of the area, the Roman governors over Galilee, where Jesus was born. And Pilate hears that and sends him over. Jesus doesn't really say anything to Herod. Herod mocks him, sends him back to Pilate. I'm just telling you so you kind of have the the, the lay chronologically of what happens. But we're going to really look at what happens before the religious leaders and then before Pilate this morning as we look at those together. And so let's pick up here with what happens in Matthew's gospel as they come before the religious leaders. And so what I want us to consider, the lies that lead to Jesus being crucified and what's happening here is he comes before Caiaphas and they're accusing him of claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the son of God, which Jesus has and he has said that. But I want you to try to get in their mindset and what's behind this and why they're so adamantly opposed to Jesus being the Christ and saying he's not and attacking him in this way to the point that they actually want to kill him. And you see that. You see that when they bring him to Pilate. They say that. We're bringing him to you because you can kill him. Uh, they say that in their uh, trial in Matthew. And they're saying these things and they keep coming back. But there's an important part that you need to understand that's going on behind the scenes. We can read the Bible. We can open the Bible and we can read it. And we're reading it through 21st century eyes. And we can miss a lot of what was happening politically and socially and culturally when this was actually taking place. And so one of the things that you need to know that was happening here is that Caiaphas, the high priest, and the religious leaders of the day, they kind of had an unspoken agreement with the Roman authorities. Well, the Romans would let them kind of control the Jewish people and them to be the authority in their lives and what was going on as long as that kind of kept them in control, right? They knew that they were under the Roman control. They knew that they didn't have uh, complete control, that that was the Romans, but they started to operate this way where they kind of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, right? So somebody like Pilate, when he they bring him to Pilate and he says, well, why are you bringing him to me? What are the charges? And he says, well, go go take them and deal with that yourself. You don't need me to be involved in this. But they say, no, 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 we do need you to be involved because we want to put them to death. And we don't have the authority to do that. And so you start to see that relationship there. And you start to see what's happening. But the question still remains, why are they so opposed to Jesus? 
Like what is happening here that they so want him dead, right? Like here in, in John chapter 18 and in verse 29, when Pilate goes out and he says, what accusation do you bring? And they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. But he says, take him yourself and judge them. And they say, no, 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 we can't put him to death. We need you because we want him to die. And you go, why? Why are they so like this? And the, and the thing is, there's a couple things happening. One is they're saying religiously that they don't believe Jesus is the son of God. And so he's now committed blasphemy by saying that about himself. But the other part is they're worried about losing their power. They're worried about losing their political power. They're worried about their standing. They're worried about what will happen if Jesus is the Messiah and everybody goes after him. I've been saying this all the way through this series, if you've been with us. Everyone's understanding outside of Jesus is that the Messiah is going to come and it's going to be a political leader. He's going to lead a revolution. He's going to overthrow the Roman authorities. He's going to put himself into power. Everything will get better for us. It'll be great, right? That's what they're looking for. That's why the crowds, so many of the crowds were going out after Jesus because they're hoping this is going to happen. But what the religious leaders of the day see, they go, we're not sure he's the Messiah and we have some questions. And if everybody goes out after him, what will happen is that we will get crushed by the Romans. We'll get destroyed and we're going to lose our power and we're going to lose our place. And we've got to make sure that doesn't happen. In fact, Caiaphas says, and he speaks very prophetically without knowing he's speaking prophetically. He says it would be better if this one man died to save the rest of us. And he's saying it's better that he dies because he's not going to, then he won't lead this revolution and we'll all be safe from the Romans. When God knew that Jesus was going to die to save us from our sins and something far greater. And so Caiaphas is prophesying without knowing he's saying it. But that's what's happening behind all of this. And so I want you to think about what's going on and all that's happening here is the religious leaders of the day. The lie that they're believing is the way that we keep things under control is through political power. And if we don't stop this in its tracks, we're going to lose our power and we're all going to be in trouble and the Romans are going to come down on us and this will never hold up. And so that's really what's behind what they're saying. And so that's what's happening with the religious leaders. In fact, it's the way that they uh, kind of suck Pilate into thinking about this too. So they come before Pilate and they bring Jesus and he's going, what's the deal? Why are you here? Why have you brought this man to me? In fact, Pilate says three different times, I find no guilt in him. Why did you guys bring him here? This is a matter between you and it sounds like a religious matter and it doesn't have anything to me to do with me. Why did you bring him here? But what happens is they say a couple things to Pilate that scare him to death, that leads him to say, yes, I'm going to give Jesus over to be crucified. And it's in chapter 19, right? So if you pick up in chapter 19, about verse four, Pilate went out again and he said, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to him, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify, crucify him for I find no guilt in him. But the Jews answered them, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. And then look at what it says. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That freaks Pilate out, right? 
They say, he made himself out to be the son of God. And all of a sudden, Pilate goes, whoa. Says he's now very afraid. Right after that, he continues to try to release him. And in verse 12, then Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Right? So he's ready to release him again. And they go back to that. And then at the very end, he says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And then he gives them over to be crucified. And so here's what I want you to see. And this is real important to the background of what's happening here. When he brings Jesus out and he says, I'm going to let him go. I find no guilt in him. And they say, but he made himself to be the son of God and he deserves death for that. And that scares Pilate to death. Do you know why? You know, there's a lot of phrases that we use today that we associate with Christianity in our modern day. One of them would be the son of God. We say Jesus is the son of God. Uh, we say the gospel, the good news. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. We say evangelism, right? Evangelism is spreading the good news, telling people who Jesus is. Or an evangelist is a person who goes and tells the good news. And we would say all those things and you go, yeah, that's associated with Christianity and you're talking about Jesus and your beliefs in him and I get it. All of those phrases meant something different in the first century. The evangel, the gospel, all those words were used within the Roman Empire. And the way they were used was to tell you the good news of what the son of God, Caesar, has done for his people. And they would send the evangelist out to say, look at what Rome has conquered And look at what they've done. Hear the gospel. Hear the good news. And the evangel would say, the son of God's only son, Caesar. And we've conquered these things. And so when Pilate hears the religious leaders say, Jesus makes him to be the son of God, he goes, ooh. It's a political statement. That's a direct opposition to Caesar and who Caesar says he is. And all of a sudden he hears that and it makes him really, really afraid. And it makes him afraid because he's thinking of things as that is going against King Caesar. And he knows if this is true and Jesus does go off and he leads a revolution, what's going to happen to Pilate? He's going to be killed. He's going to lose his position. He's going to lose his power. And so what happens, and this is what I want you to see, that everybody's missing in this story as it moves along with Jesus. As everyone around him is worried about their power. They're worried about their political power and what's happening. And Jesus is a threat to that. And we've got to neutralize them. And that's what they're saying all the way through. And they conflate that. And so what Jesus is saying is not that, but that's what they hear. And he's saying, my kingdom's not of this world. And it's not like that, but that's what they're hearing. And so the reason I want you to think about this, you go, okay, great. That's all important background. I kind of maybe understand the story a little better. What does that have to do with me? This is the water that we're swimming in that we live in today. The church has bought the idea that political power is the way to fix the world. And that is not what Jesus says. I say it's the water we're swimming in because we're so inundated with it, we don't even see it a lot of the times. Maybe you've heard the old cartoon. The the old fish is swimming along and he swims by two younger fish. You know what he says to the younger fish? says, how's the water today, boys? And the two younger fish swim off and they go, what water? What is he talking about? And that's us so often today in our culture. We start to conflate things and we start to say, well, the problem is the government, 
or the problem is the laws, or the problem is this, or the problem is that. And we make different things the problem. And we put our focus on it. We say, this is the problem in the world. And if we make something other than sin the problem in the world, then the answer becomes something other than Jesus. And that's what we do. And that's exactly what everyone around Jesus was doing. Alistair McGrath, great theologian, philosopher, he says, whenever you remove God from a society, that society will transcendentalize something else in order to be morally superior. You hear what he's saying? He says, when you remove God from the equation, we'll look to something else to put our hope in. We'll we'll make something else the problem, but then we'll make something else the answer. And as soon as we do that, we are now seeking to accomplish something by a means that can never accomplish what we hope it accomplishes. And we're in trouble. That's exactly what was happening with Jesus everywhere he went as we read through the Gospels. Everywhere he went, they wanted to make him king. They wanted to put him in political power. They wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to make him be the guy that could do all those things for him. If we just have him as king, everything will be great. And Jesus goes, no. Over and over, he slips through the crowds. Right? We we read this throughout the Gospels. They come and they're forcefully going to make Jesus king. And it says he, he escaped. Literally goes and turns the other way and slips his way out and goes, no. Not doing that. It says he would know that they were coming to make him king and he would leave. The problem that they have is the same problem that we end up having today. We put our focus on something that's not the problem and then we put our hope in something that can't fix it. Here's the question I want you to consider as you read through the Gospels. How many times does Jesus embrace this idea that we can fix things through political power? Zero. (laughs) How many times does he say, come follow me and we're going to do this thing and the way it's going to go is we're going to start this revolution and we're going to overthrow governments and we're going to pick up the sword. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't say that. It says the opposite to Peter. Remember last week, Peter pulls out his sword. Put your sword away, Peter. It's not happening like this. This is not the way this goes. And so over and over, you see Jesus calling us to something totally different. But here's the problem. So often we see things through our flesh. It's the water we're swimming in. It's the world we live in. And here's the answer. And here's the problem. And here's the answer. And we put all our energy and focus in that. Now, please hear me when I say this. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved in political discourse. You should. You should vote and you should think and you should be involved and you should speak the truth in those things. But don't put your hope in that. Don't put your hope for hearts being changed in something that can't change hearts. Can't do it. And if we as the church begin to look just like the world and we put our hope in those things, it will never happen and it won't work. And it's not what Jesus calls us to. And so what does he call us to? What does he say here? What does he do to counteract that tide of the world that says that? And I want you to look closely at what Jesus does say in this passage in the midst of everyone else seeking political power. And even when his death is imminent in the face of it, what does he say? And so pick up in John chapter 18, verse 38. Actually, yeah, 30, let's go back to, yeah, 38 is fine. 
John chapter 18 and verse 38. Pilate, or actually, I'm sorry, go back. I'm getting confused on my verse 33. So go back to verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, do you say this on your own accord or do others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that they may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, but for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And so what does Jesus say here? He says, my purpose, the reason I was born, the reason that I have come into the world is to bear witness to the truth, to show you what is real. We've been saying this in the very beginning. John's gospel starts this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that word for word is logos, the divine truth, the ultimate reality of how things are. Jesus is the truth. He is God himself in the flesh. God's words are God's truth. And he tells us the way things are. And Jesus says, I've come into the world to bear witness, to show you what it looks like, to show you what is true. What is true about who God is? What is true about the way that you're made? What is true about the way you're to live in this world that God has created? And Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And all of this holds together in me. He even defines truth. He defines those that are seeking the truth as those that listen to my words. He alone is the truth. And so you see our broken world and how do we operate in it? We come and we follow Jesus and we follow him completely and totally because he is the truth. He is the reality of how things are. And so when the world says, no, 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 you take power and you take it by force and then you seek to control people, you go, no. It's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not the way he says the world works. Jesus' whole life, as you watch him, as he goes, as he meets people and he's speaking to them and he speaks the truth in love. And he tells them the reality of how things are. And yes, he's healing and he's meeting people's needs and he's bringing things to, uh, to wholeness everywhere he goes and he's setting things aright, but he continues to speak the truth. And then he calls us as his followers to do the same. Abide in me and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. John chapter eight, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He says, you continue to trust me in everything and in all ways. And God's kingdom is coming through who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And you can trust that. Even when the world says that's not the way it works. And the world says that. It says it a lot. It says it a whole lot right now about a whole lot of things. And Jesus says, you continue to trust me. You continue to put your faith in my word. And he says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And then he tells us to obey all that he commanded. To follow him. We are called to do the same. 
to be a light in a dark world, to point to who Jesus is in all things. And he tells us that that's what it looks like. And so it cannot be, it cannot be, yeah, Jesus says these things, but this is how the world works. And so now we've got to go and follow these things if we want to get some things done. In fact, that'll do the opposite. It brings destruction because Jesus is the ultimate reality of what is true. And we are called to follow him in all things. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not easy. And it's hard. And it's kind of scary. Particularly when the world is operating over power over and against. And it's through these things and it's in these ways. And you go, no, it's not. So how do you continue to trust him and walk with him in all things and in all ways? And I think you look at exactly what Jesus says and what he does and what happens right here in this text. And I want to just show you a couple things that happens in the midst of this, right? As we start to look at what this looks like and how we continue to trust him in the middle of it. And so Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to go back there for just a second, verses 63 and 64. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you know what he's saying? You heard what Mike chose to read? It's the the call to worship from Daniel chapter seven, where it talks about the son of man that's coming and his kingdom that's coming with it. That's what Jesus is saying. And all the religious leaders knew what he was saying. Tell us if you're the son of God. And he's like, oh, I am. And when you see me, you're going to see me coming in glory with the clouds of heaven at the right hand of the father. And they all go. He says, my kingdom is coming. And it's not coming the way you think it's coming, but it is coming. It's the same thing that he says in front of Pilate when he stands before Pilate. And he's asking him these questions and Jesus finally answers him and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So that's not what my kingdom looks like. Or you get to the end of chapter 16. And Pilate comes in and asks him, he says, where are you from? Right? He hears that they're saying that Jesus has claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate is freaked out by that. And he walks in and he goes, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. And that scares him even more. And he's looking at him thinking, what in the world? He's actually trying to let Jesus go. And he's asking him these questions. And he says, don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it's been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Do you hear what he says? Pilate was kind of freaked out by Jesus. He's the son of God and he's hearing these things and he's observing him. And then he goes, don't you know I have the authority to let you go? And he says, you have no authority. So what's he saying in all of this? What's Jesus telling us? His kingdom is coming and it's coming in full. And the way that it's coming is because of what he's done for us on the cross. And that was always the plan. That it was always by grace 
through faith and what Jesus was going to do for us and nothing else. And here's the thing that I want you to see. That's still the plan. It's still by grace through faith and who Jesus is and nothing else. It's not that we say that won't work. It's not that we go being kind and gracious won't work and we've got to get involved and take power and make people do it. That's not true. That is not the gospel. That is not who God is. That is not who Jesus is. He says greater love than this. What does he say? That a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says my kingdom looks like peacemakers that are poor in spirit that mourn over the things of the world that lay down their life for the people around them my kingdom is upside down to the way the world looks and if we miss that as the church there's no light in the world we look like everything else right now right now today the place that God has placed us in we have an opportunity to shine brightly for who Jesus is. To lay down your life for your neighbor. To love the people that think very differently than you. To continue to speak the truth and bear witness to the truth in the world today. And through that, as people experience the grace of God, God changes hearts. That's still the answer. It's still the answer, no matter what the world says, no matter what the world looks like. And so I want you to please hear this and just end here with what first Peter says. Peter, who went through all this, who lived in the Roman Empire, who was under the oppression of this government and what it looks like. Says this in first Peter chapter two, what credit is it if you, when you sin, are beaten for it and you endure But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is our call as the church. To continue to make much of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. To love others in the way that Jesus loved us. To show what he's like. That's the call. And it doesn't matter what the world says. That's still our mission as the church. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you've done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. We do confess that this is a difficult time to stand for truth. To love you in the midst of that. We pray that you would help us to trust you in all ways and all things. We pray that we would be people of the truth. That bear witness to the truth. Who love you in the midst 
of a world that has gone crazy in so many ways, but that we would do so with great humility, with grace, that we continue to point people to who you are and what you've done for us. And that would be true of the way that we seek to live. We pray that you would see fit to use us in that and that we'd see great fruit that comes from following you and trusting you in all ways and in all things. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.